In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Advent comes to us with the reminder that the meaning of our time depends greatly upon the story in which we are living. For the naturalist, time is marked by the passing of seasons, by the growth of flora, the migratory patterns of fauna, the slow reshaping of continents by the steady pounding of the sea. For the economist or the industrialist, it is measured by the furious sprint of Monday to Friday, by the rise and fall of the stock market and the cyclical flow of the fiscal year with its dividend payments and tax assessments. The way we mark our time obliges us to a discipline of observation by which we note the change of days and seasons, out of which we grow in a discipline of action, the way our lives conform to the story of our time. How we mark the time inevitably shapes the manner in which we live. The scriptures attest to at least two different senses of time as it takes its meaning from the foundational identity of the Christian. The first is chronos, or chronological time, the sequence of hours, days, months, and years. The second is kairos time, time measured not in duration, but in terms of purpose. The kairos is the Lord's anointed time, the seasons of salvation history, time marked by the acts of God. Kronos and Kairos are designed to live together in unity, but the fall of humanity in Eden created a sense of Kronos that was divorced from the Lord's Kairos, giving us a time that could only keep passing in a repetitive cycle and whose only meaning could be birth to death. Only when united with Kairos again, the Lord's time, could time again mark the journey from creation to redemption to resurrection. As Christians who live in Christ, the one who perfectly unites Kronos and Kairos in himself as its creator, we mark the time sacramentally as those who live in Kronos in the light of his Kairos. Faithfulness, as the scriptures define it, consists of our living our lives in a way that testifies to the truth of God's purposes and his Kairos in the midst of many other competing notions of time. As Christians, the Lord's time is meant to become our time, and our time, his time. In the scriptures, this is the idea behind what they call the favorable season, an epic of history defined by what are called appointed times, through which all are called to participate in the work of God in a particular and special way. The scripture's notion of time is also frequently expressed in terms of what is called the day of the Lord or the time of visitation, 
specific days, specific times that punctuate the season when God's people are inspected and assessed for their faithfulness by how they are living in the Lord's Kairos amid the world's Kronos. The context of our gospel lesson this morning pulls from this context, pulls from this sense of time, and takes us back to a time of calamity in the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Before the threat of the Assyrians who were about to invade from the north, the leaders of the kingdoms sought not to put their trust in the provision of God as he had promised to give it, but rather sought politically expedient solutions to the problem of invasion. They were consumed by the pressing needs of their chronos, their moment in history. And so they lost sight of the kairos, the promise made in the covenant between God and Israel. In Isaiah 28, the prophet condemns the leaders of the southern kingdom of Judah for thinking that they could make a deal with the Assyrian Empire and avoid the destruction that was befalling their northern brethren. Isaiah's first and most furious condemnation is for the priests of the temple at Jerusalem, who not only approve of this compromise with Assyria, but who also mock the word of the Lord going through Isaiah to repent from it. The ones who should embody covenant faithfulness had corrupted the temple, allowing it to become by degree a house of idols. God's message to them is that he will himself provide a new cornerstone for a new temple, more glorious than the already glorious temple of Solomon, by which everything else in Jerusalem and then everything else in creation would be measured. That which is squared by that new cornerstone will be deemed sound and will endure, and that which is not squared by that cornerstone will be deemed unsound and will be demolished. And the plumb line that squares everything to that divinely given cornerstone would be nothing less than God's own definition of justice, which is faithfulness to the covenant and to the law. In the gospel lesson, the day of the Lord comes for Jerusalem after the promise of Isaiah. The Messiah enters to visit and judge the city's faithfulness, their justice under the covenant. And he is there to establish the promised cornerstone of the temple, which is himself. Those disciples closest to Christ begin the day. The small remnant gathered around Jesus starts through quiet obedience in procuring the colt of the donkey at Jesus' word. Their obedience germinates. As this remnant shows the crowds along the road to Jerusalem how best they should honor Christ with a palm and a garment-lined robe, with shouts of Hosanna. What begins in quiet discipline swells into public acclamation. Christ, surrounded by his remnant, surrounded by the populace directed by that remnant, arrives at Jerusalem for its judgment day. 
the arrival of Christ throws into an uproar the city that should celebrate his coming, but doesn't. Meanwhile, the pilgrim disciples and those who flocked to them are ready to meet Jesus in a way that the temple city is not. It is unprepared for its visitation. It is unprepared for the day of the Lord. Regardless of its lack of preparation, Jesus still enters the city. The anointed Messiah is undeterred by bewilderment and resistance. He goes to the temple, and he executes the judgment foretold by Isaiah, squaring away the temple against himself, and against which the rest of the city and its leadership are to be judged in the days to come. Judgment begins at the house of God after the triumphal entry of its king. And then, and only then, the city goes on to be judged. The unreadiness of Jerusalem at its visitation is the backdrop of St. Paul's exhortation in the epistle lesson. His call to love one another as the fulfillment of the whole law, the very heart of justice and faithfulness, is what it means to be squared against that perfect cornerstone that God is making around Christ. The ethic of love for God and neighbor, the fullness of the law that we proclaim every Sunday, is the ethic of the remnant of those disciples who obey the Lord at his word and who teach the world obedience through their own example. Our obedience to that ethic of love is our testimony to the world, such that they may be illuminated and welcomed into our pilgrimage towards the city of God. St. Paul hinges the call to love, though, on our understanding that the favorable season of the Lord is at hand. He expects us to know the time is near. The season, the kairos, is at hand, because the hour, the appointed time has come to awaken to the day of the Lord that is drawn very near in the nighttime and is about to break into dawn. Advent is here. And Advent reminds us that salvation and judgment begin with the house of God, and that means us. We turn now in humble repentance back to the Lord. We submit and offer our time to him for redemption and consecration. We should fast, we should pray, we should repent, and we should keep watch. The privilege of the church in the Advent season, the privilege that belongs to the church alone of all the bodies in the world, is to proclaim the Advent of the Lord, to proclaim the coming of the King and the dawning of his day. If the church does not do this, no one else will. The triumphal entry of Christ that we observe in the gospel lesson is now the permanent condition of the universe. He has come in great humility, and he will come again with great majesty. These days of the Lord define this season we are living in. But we must always remember, as we do every Sunday, that the passion of the Lord for our salvation, the purpose of his coming at Christmas, the purpose of his entry in Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, 
is the same purpose for his coming to us every Sunday in Eucharist. The saving mystery we proclaim in the Lord's Supper is what gives our time its purpose and its fullness. Jesus comes to inspect and to save us at every single Mass. In a few minutes, we will all come forward to meet him. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation here this morning. Advent begins, and I exhort us all to open our lives to Jesus, putting off the deeds of darkness, putting upon us the armor of light, Christ himself, the day spring from on high, using the gift of this time, this season of opportunity, of preparation well, to bear witness to him in a new way, in a way we have not done before. So when the day of the Lord comes, we may be found faithful as those who have prepared the world around us to meet him. That when he comes, we might with all those who have gathered to us and with us, hail him at his coming. And so become inheritors of the fullness of life, of his immortal life, that he will give to all of us who love him when he comes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.